1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Eleanor Parker about her book entitled Dragon Lords The History and Legends of Viking England. Eleanor, welcome to New Books Network. Hi. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
2: Uh, Yeah, so I'm a medievalist, obviously. Um, I teach uh, Old and Middle English literature at the University of Oxford. Um, and as we will discuss, I'm sure my special interest is in the Vikings in England.
1: I thought that it was especially interesting subject given, you know, some of the issues that we have with accessing the Vikings. I, I'm no specialist in medieval history, but I do know that so much of the history of the Vikings and, and and their history in England is difficult to access because at that time, the Vikings themselves didn't write. And yet you took on a topic that, you know, you know requires a a, a lot of you know analysis and digging what was it that led you to write this book
2: well that was one of the things that um interested me about it actually that you say that the vikings kind of didn't write their own story um until quite a bit uh, after the the viking age really um so what the book is mostly about is how other people perceived the vikings um but also how far we can see what you might call viking perspectives coming across in english sources Um, and i was just really interested in that question of can we actually work out what the vikings or the descendants of the vikings thought about uh, their activities in England. I
1: was wondering if you could start us off by talking a little bit about the that history of the Viking in interaction with England. I mean, w- w- what sort of period of time are we talking about? And what was their level of engagement with the English population? Because as you explain in the book, that has a lot to do with how they're viewed in the English literary sources.
2: Yeah. So um, one important thing to say is that it's a quite a long period. We're talking about Um, starting in the 8th century and then going up right to the 11th century. So, you know, several centuries of um, Anglo-Saxon history. And uh, what I particularly look at in the book is the fact that there's lots of different types of Viking activity in England. So there's kind of raiding, which I guess most people associate with the Vikings. But it's also important that in particularly northern and eastern England, the Vikings settled down and interacted with the local population um, and, you know, really made England their home and kind of forged a mixed Anglo-Scandinavian society in those regions. Um, So you do get Viking armies, you know, raiding and killing and all that kind of stuff that, that, uh, you know, the classic Viking stuff, but also trading, of course, between England and Scandinavia, and then this pattern of settlement um, in the ninth century, um, which is really important factor in the history of those regions of England.
1: And yet you also had this point at which there is this disruption in the 11th century, after which the Vikings are no longer have quite that same control over the population that they had in the centuries in which they were so dominant.
2: Yeah, that's right. So in the Anglo-Saxon period, England was very kind of uh, oriented towards Scandinavia in lots of ways. I mean, it had relationships with other European countries as well, of course, you know, Normandy and so on, Um, but it was very much looking to, the north and after the Norman conquest that really shifted to a substantial degree and um kind of england was never quite a scandinavian ever after ever again
1: <laughs> well i make the point because i was thinking as I was, I was reading your book about how the uh how so many of the the stories you describe their 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 development how that so much of it occurs in 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 the that we can recover in the uh post anglo-saxon period you know during the the normans and the Plantagenets and so forth and how you know at, at that point maybe the vikings don't have quite as much of a say in terms of how they appear in in the writings of of the people of england
2: yeah that's right so by that point you're very much looking at kind of um how people are perceiving or remembering or looking back on that history and you know, the actual events of the Viking Age are now very distant by that point. And so they very much get turned into legend and story. Um, and it really kind of isn't history any longer, but an interpretation of history. I was wondering if you could
1: uh, maybe explain to us, what are some of the source materials that we're talking about here? What, what are these English writings? What are some of these English writings in which the Vikings are, are featured or mentioned in a way that uh, influences our understanding of them?
2: Uh, so it's a, a kind of a range of sources really um you've got uh, so some chronicles and histories and kind of obviously you'd expect to find stories there um also saints lives because there are a number of important popular english saints who <laughs> were um, killed by the vikings or interacted with the vikings so that's also an important source and then particularly in the later medieval period um romance so stories which are like versions of history but very much turned into um, narrative and legend, not kind of aiming to be a strict historical narrative. Um, And all of those kinds of different sources sort of feed into each other in the medieval period. There's not like a clear dividing line between any of those genres of literature.
1: Is there any uh, one or two of them which stand out in particular as having uh, informed your analysis or that have really stood out in terms of shaping our understanding of the Vikings?
2: I think what's really interesting is what emerges when you consider them all together, actually, Um, So often these texts have been studied kind of individually, like one particular romance, which is about a Viking hero, um, like the story of Havelock is kind of taken to be an unusual story. Like, why is it about a Viking hero? But actually if you consider it in the context of all of these other types of sources, you can see kind of common interests and common features. And they're sometimes asking the same questions about why were the Vikings here? Why did they come to England? What did they do here? What was their effect on England?
1: So when you were writing the book, Uh, your book, how were you, were you basically then taking the stories collectively and drawing out the tales or uh, were you focusing upon one tale and then seeing where it might have appeared elsewhere in different forms?
2: Well, you can kind of divide, there are certain heroes who appear in a number of different sources. So you can kind of compare how a certain story is told by different writers or in different periods or different places in England. Um, And then, you can kind of take a a global view of all of those stories and often even if they're about different heroes or slightly different stories they do still um take a sort of similar interest in the vikings um so you get certain themes kind of recurring again and again like the the real desire that english writers had to make the vikings story a personal one like they must have come because there was a someone's death they were trying to avenge or something like that Um, that's a feature that comes up again and again in lots of different types of stories um, which is kind of interesting.
1: Uh, uh, it's funny you mention that because I was thinking about how much that plays a role in this, in uh, the uh, the stories of in some of the stories of the first uh, character you feature in your book, which is Ragnar uh, Lothbrok. Am I pronouncing that correctly?
2: Lothbrok, yeah.
1: yeah. And 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 how uh, you, you point out how that's you know something that is mentioned as a motivation in some of the events undertaken by his sons. I was wondering if you could perhaps. Uh, Tell us a bit about uh, the character and how and and what we understand about him and then maybe some of the representations of both him and his sons in the various forms of English literature that you have discussed.
2: In the English tradition, um, Lothbrook is quite a different character from what he is in Scandinavian literature. So in Scandinavian literature, he's very much a great Viking warrior, leader, um, dragon fighter, all of that. In England, Lothbrook is just this, uh, usually just this kind of fairly uh, harmless um, Viking uh, who kind of ends up in England sometimes just by accident in some of the stories, um, and is uh, sort of comes becomes connected with um, the king of East Anglia, whose name is Edmund, um, who was a real historical figure who was actually killed by the Vikings, and so these stories about Lothbrook are sort of reinterpreting Edmund's death um, by in in one of the most common versions of the story he's kind of friends with lothbrook lothbrook is at his court and lothbrook gets murdered um he's completely innocent but when his sons find out that he's been murdered they come and get revenge and they blame edmund even though it's not really edmund's fault either so this is clearly a story which is sort of developing from the actual historical event of edmund's death um in 869 and yet is sort of making giving lothbrook A role in the story and then giving his sons this fairly kind of sympathetic motive of they've come to England to kill Edmund, which is kind of a horrible thing to do, but they're doing it to avenge their father. So that sort of makes them sympathetic.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: And yet, as you explain, in, in you is that there? It's not necessarily a consistent story about Lothbrook and his sons that you see throughout all the various mentions of him in medieval literature, that there there are variations and twists upon it. What's going on there?
2: Well, I think it's just um, when you see variations of that kind, it's um, evidence that the story is being told. It's being shared maybe in oral tradition as well as in written sources. Um, And in this case, it seems likely that the first stories about Ragnar and and his sons were sort of told Um, in England, and then maybe went to Scandinavia, uh, to Denmark, and they're different in, you know, Denmark and Norway and Iceland. And then in different parts of England, they have different versions of the story. So it's just evidence of a story that's in wide circulation, probably. Okay.
1: Uh, I'd like to move on to uh, the next uh, figure you feature. uh, And that's, uh, again, if I apologize, Mr. Francis, it's Cyward. Seaward, seaward, and 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 how you here you have a character for whom, as you explain, we have more historical information about, so we can do more of a comparison with the history that that we know in terms of understanding the elements of his tale that are common and the other elements of his tale that uh, you know may be more uh, you know changed or or, or adapted. Well, what's going on? What's going on with seaward?
2: Yeah, so again, in this case, you've got someone who was a real historical figure. Um, in this case, in the 11th century, he was a, um, a Scandinavian earl uh, in the time of King Canute. And he was earl of Northumbria, which was a very large and important kingdom, uh, sorry, earldom in England. Um, and sometime after his, his death in the 11th century, maybe the 12th or 13th century, you get a story being told about him, which is clearly unhistorical, unhistorical. Um, so, for instance, it says he's descended from a bear. Um, so obviously,
0: muttered,
2: <laughs> um, and also has other stories about him fighting dragons um, and having this kind of prophetic encounter with someone who may or may not be Odin, um, kind of telling him how to go and make his fortune in London or all that kind of thing. So that's clearly um, a legendary story. And it's made up of elements which sort of belong to Anglo-Scandinavian traditions and narrative legends. Um but clearly, somebody was interested in telling this story about Seawood and giving him this this kind of great, uh, you know, saga of his own almost.
1: And that's one of the things I I found so fascinating in reading your book, which was this idea that it was what you're getting at is not just the these Vikings. And, you know, how they're being perceived and how those interpretations are changing, but also the, the flip side of it, which is that you have these English authors who are, are seeking to in, engage with this element of their past, even though as, you know, time goes along, it become, you know, and, and we start, to, you know, the Normans come in and England has that, you know, orientation more towards uh, the, the, the a sub, more southerly part of the continent, About how they it, it's becoming an increasingly alien part of their past.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and that kind of makes it more fertile ground for reimagining, I suppose. The further it gets back into the distant past, the more you can play around with it and turn it into a story that provides something for a contemporary audience.
1: Hmm. What, it's also interesting how you don't just address stories centered around these characters. You also talk about stories of Englishmen uh, from the period uh, that are in which the Vikings or the Danes are featured individuals with it. And here uh, I'm thinking of your chapter on uh, Guy of Warwick. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about him and the representation of, of the Danes in the story and what that reveals.
2: Yeah, so that's an interesting example, because in that case, Guy or Guy of Warwick is our hero. So he's the one we're supposed to be sympathizing with, and he's fighting against the Vikings. And the Vikings are in a, invading England. Um, and that's not an uncommon kind of pattern as you might be able to imagine in medieval uh histories that you know the vikings are coming to invade and some english army has to stand up against them and and whatever but what's unusual about the guy of warwick story is that um the danes in that case are, are sort of presented as having quite a good reason for coming to england and quite a good case for claiming they have some right to rule in england um and so that's taken kind of seriously within the context of the romance it's not like they're not just you know vikings coming to raid and steal stuff and you have to you know, get rid of them because they're a sort of invading plague. In Guy Warwick, they're sort of treated like they have some right to make this claim, but our hero Guy is going to defeat them and that will sort of solve the problem. But it's very much treated as a kind of political um, dispute between two kind of fairly, um, not equally (laughs) entitled parties, but two interested parties who have some right to rule England
1: it's something I, I thought was especially interesting because I the I, I was thinking as a basis of comparison how you might see in modern day fiction the representation of the villain or the antagonist as being a figure who is uh, you know basically you know, has no honorable motive or reasonable motive they're just bad and, and, and here it seems they 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 take uh they they, they take the uh, the uh, you know the 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 Vikings very maturely and 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 they 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 give them representations that are seem uh, respectable. It to, to, was there any effort to tie it to any sort of, of of historical evidence, or to what degree did these sometimes were were they you know made out of whole cloth?
2: Um, I think very often they're they're quite a long way away from the historical sources um, of or rather from you know what really happened. But what's quite interesting is I guess they do these stories do reflect that England's history with the Vikings is very complex. It isn't a straightforward story of good and bad. Um, you know, some people are happy to tell it that way. But a lot of other writers seem to recognise that actually this is a history which sometimes is violent, but often is also about peaceful settlement and coexistence and integration and so on as well. Um, so. You know, it is a complex story, and some writers are prepared to acknowledge that complexity, I think.
1: I'd like to turn our attention now to uh, the story of Havelock, which you've already uh, mentioned in passing. What does it have to uh, say about uh, the the Danes and their presence, and and how are they represented in the story?
2: So Havelock is an example of um, a story where—so it's an incredibly popular story, as far as we can tell, especially in Lincolnshire— Um, and in the East Midlands in the Middle Ages. Um, And it's very hard to know what the historical basis of that story is, or if Havelock is based on a real person or anything like that. But clearly the story was meaningful, whether or not it had any historical basis. And this is the story, Havelock is a Danish prince who ends up, for whatever reason, according to different versions of the story, um, kind of exiled in England, growing up in England, growing up in poverty, actually, um, in Grimsby, which is in northern Lincolnshire. Um, And when he grows up, he manages to regain his kingdom and marry an English princess and so kind of unite England and Denmark um, in one country and be a, you know, live to be a great, good king. Um, so it's a, a nice example of how people were thinking about a, a very positive representation of a Viking king. You know, look is this sort of um, saintly like hero, really. He's, he's good with children and he's nice to everybody and, you know, not at all your to a typical image of the Vikings.
1: It, it's, Interesting how saintly he's portrayed in that because it, it gets to this, you know, what you conclude your book with, which is this examination of the the Vikings' uh, cultural legacy, their, their, their presence in the English memory. You, in, throughout your book, you, you talk, about you analyze these particular instances, and you talk about various changes and and, and, and alterations that take place, differences between the uh, depictions that take place over chronicles stretching over hundreds of years what do they all say together about the vikings and and their and their legacy for england uh in the middle ages and perhaps even down to today
2: well they they really say i think what they collectively kind of say is that the vikings are an important part of the history of england um not just because you know as i was saying not just because they they raided but because they settled in northern and eastern england um and they really did leave a lasting cultural legacy, particularly in those regions. Um, and it's often from those parts of England that the stories that I'm looking at originate. So there's a real sense in which they are an important, a formative part of those particular regions of England and something that sets them apart um, and makes them distinctive. And actually, you can, you can really see that in um, even northern culture today. Even if you just look at a, a you know, map of uh, place names in England, you can see a very clear divide between Scandinavian place names in the north and Anglo-Saxon mostly place names in the South. It's definitely still a a cultural divide that you can see in England.
1: Is that also reflected in the representation as well? This is not a past they are ashamed of. They recognize that this is a part of who they are, and so therefore they treat it with honor as well?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, in my view, you can see that in the medieval sources that there's, you know, a clear sense in which some of these people are really proud of having Viking ancestors like you know, the Vikings came to Lincolnshire, for instance, and we're proud of that. And there's certainly today, there are parts of England, which are really proud of their Viking heritage. You know, if you go to York, you will find they are very, very proud to say they're a Viking city. And um, so it's definitely felt to be something that's still important.
1: Well, we've taken up a good chunk of your time. I was wondering if you could tell us though, what you're working on now?
2: Well, I'm working now on a book about um, people who grew up in the shadow of the Norman Conquest. So children people who were children at the time of the conquest and then had to live their adult lives in the shadow of that life-changing event
1: it's fascinating is it going to be primarily a literary study or are you going to be incorporating uh social history as well
2: it's a bit of both oh wow
1: (laughs) sounds like a fascinating book i hope we can have you back on the new books network to talk about it when it's done thank you eleanor parker thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us i hope
2: you have a wonderful day thanks very much